Hello, and welcome to Spacewalks Money Talks, where we talk about space exploration business, technology, policy, and history. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with David J. Eicher, co-author of Cosmic Clouds 3D, published by MIT Press, June 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure. So first, um, so you've been involved with space studies for a while. Tell me how you uh, got into studying and writing on this particular subject. Well, it's a long story, but I'll compress it. I grew up uh, the son of an organic chemist at Miami University in Ohio. And so I grew up around a chem lab. And, you know, you never want to do exactly what you're dad did, but I was very interested in the sciences, and I was sort of on a path, I thought, maybe to becoming an applied scientist with uh, a physician, medicine surgeon, maybe, and then I made the mistake of going to a star party in this little college town one night and saw Saturn in a small telescope and was immediately electrified that you could just go out and see this stuff uh, in your yard. Uh, and so I was uh, just turned on incredibly. It, it led to founding a little publication about observing the sky, and that led me to Astronomy Magazine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so tell me about the focus of this book, and uh, and also Brian May's part in it, because he's the other co-author, you know, guitarist of Queen, the whole uh, celebrity status there. Can you uh, talk about yeah. that? Absolutely. Yeah, Brian is is an astrophysicist. You know, he was on the cusp of completing his PhD in 1970 uh, at in Tenerife, uh, and and when he uh, things really sort of started rolling with this band Queen. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so to his family's horror, at first he he stopped his PhD work and went off and played rock and roll. It worked out okay for him, Uh, but he went back, actually, and completed his Ph.D. 30-some years later Mm -hmm. um, under the guise of a professor called Garrick Israelian. And they had the idea about a decade ago to start a science festival that would uh, uh, publicize and uh, celebrate both science, astronomy, and other sciences, and music. And they called it Starmus, the Starmus Festival. Hmm. Um, and that's where I fell in and got to know them about a decade ago. And they invited me to become part of the board there of the Starmus Festival. And we've been uh, pals ever since. And so this is actually the second book that Brian and I have worked on together. Okay. Uh, can you spell Starmus for anyone who wants S-T-A-R-M-U-S for stars and music. Oh, okay. All right. So this book is focused on astronomy book on um, nebula or nebulae. Well, you can pronounce, you can correct me. Nebulae, in fact, indeed, the the cosmic clouds that are scattered all through the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we did our first book on uh, to we, it struck us that we ought to do a fiftieth anniversary book of stereo views of the Apollo landings. Mm -hmm. Brian, since he was a kid, has been fascinated with stereoscopy and 3D views of reality, of all sorts of things. And he's a master at it and a collector of stereo cards and viewing the world in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. So uh, we did that Apollo book and and we were able to sort through the huge archive of Apollo astronaut images to match up views that would make three-dimensional views when viewed side by side. Mm -hmm. 
don't have that luxury here taking it out into the universe because we don't have the the objects obviously are so distant that you can't get a parallax difference in shooting views mm -hmm. to make a 3d view of them but we we knew of this incredible finnish astrophotographer whose name is jp metzavanio and he has simulated in a very sophisticated way these three-dimensional views of nebulae so these are the star clouds in which stars are born. They're sort of on the endpoints of the lives of stars. They're the clouds of gas and dust where stars are born, mm -hmm. and also the clouds of gas and residue that uh, result from stars dying as well. So it shows us the whole life cycle of stars in this present book. Now, are these clouds found in, can, can you identify certain areas of the the galaxy or the universe where they're found, you know, are they concentrated somewhere or is it sort of ran random, more or less? They, they, indeed, they're, they're concentrated in our sky along the plane of the Milky Way. You know, the, the, the milky glowing light you can see if you get away from cities as a band of light through the sky at various times is our galaxy that we're a part of seen from within. Mm -hmm. And all of these clouds that we're looking at are inside our Milky Way, and so they more or less lie along that band of light that we call the Milky Way in the sky. Mm -hmm. Although, of course, there are many billions of other galaxies in the universe that also have these clouds, but they're very, very far away, of course. Right. So um, can you talk a little bit about the um, telescopes that are used to capture the, the image or the data of these clouds? Yeah, now we, you know, we included images from other astrophotographers and some professional observatory, a uh, few images as well in, in 3D to, to show those in simulation. Mm -hmm. But mostly they're captured with telescopes anywhere from about eight inches in diameter. That's the diameter of the mirror up to about 20 inches or so. Uh, so these are, are medium to large amateur telescopes most of these um photos were made with that you can buy and actually use as an amateur uh, astrophotographer and capture these pictures mm -hmm. astronomy is a, almost a unique science in that we have the same laboratory as amateurs as okay. lovers of the sky as the professionals do mm -hmm. one thing um i'm not sure and this might be outside the scope of the book but perhaps you have an answer um so you do have amateurs um, doing this with their own equipment, but how about telescope time for the um, the big observatories? Um, do yeah. they get a lot of time to photograph or image or collect data on these clouds? You know, because I know science, space science, there are a lot of conflicting um, requirements and demands. There are indeed, and there's more going on in terms of astronomical research now than ever before. So it's really a fire hose of people doing research projects now and in all sorts of different directions. So these clouds have been studied well by professional astronomers with telescopes that are on the ground and, and to some degree orbiting telescopes like Hubble mm. as well. But they're one of many, many categories of things that get studied. So, so they are competing for time, although understanding the life cycles of stars and how stars are born and evolve over time, which changes a lot 
depending on the mass of the star, it's very different for lightweight stars compared to heavy stars, uh, is really important to understand how the universe works. So they've gotten a lot of time and attention in the past. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when I interview people, I, I also focus on um, space commercialization, you know, everyone trying to make money off space. Do yeah. um, Does the study of these, you know, this kind of study, um, is it right now just for pure research, you know, science and understanding, or does it have any business applications at all, any of the information gathered? It is really for pure research and pure understanding of how stars and the galaxy work. It, it really doesn't have that sort of commercial or space exploration uh, um, angle to it, mm -hmm. like some things like, you know, mining asteroids and things like that in the solar system eventually will probably. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of purely an understanding how things work. But that's important because it tells us about the sun and we know what the future of the sun is going to be uh, because of this and how our sun formed and what will happen to our solar system and how long life will go on on Earth uh, before it's untenable and all sorts of related questions come out of this study. But it's not really a commercial study. Mm -hmm. So how do you choose? Um, well, how, how many different images could you have included and, and how many did you include and how did you choose that? Yeah, that was really hard um, because there are so many. You know, this is a, a in astronomy with images and with with research and so on. We have an embarrassment of riches going on these days. So we started with two or three hundred images mm -hmm. um, and included as many as we could. I think there are a couple of hundred images in the book. A lot of them that JP shot as stereo pairs were important to go in because he put a lot of time in in figuring out, say, what was in front of the center of this object and what was behind it and all this kind of stuff. So we ended up with a couple of hundred of picture, couple of hundred pictures, but we started with about 400 we were looking at to consider altogether. And there are many, many thousands. The archives at Astronomy Magazine have about 35,000 such images of really nice uh, nebulae. Now, pictures of these, uh, these kinds of astronomical objects do get better over time. Mm -hmm. So generally, the more recent ones are the ones that look coolest and are the best. I'm speaking with David J. Eicher, co-author of Cosmic Clouds 3D. You can find more information on Twitter at D. Eicher Star and on Facebook at David John Eicher or on the Astronomy Magazine website. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if you can. Please go to my website, spacewalksmoneytalks.com, for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. Who made the choice on what what to include and, and what factors um, went into that those choices and that was really a group effort jp who shot a lot of these stereos mm -hmm. um chose and sent us a lot of the ones that he liked best of of his and there were others that i chose a lot of and, and there are others brian served as the creative director on this book if you will so lots of things made the rounds and a whole team of people brian's 
publishing company that co-publishes the book actually with MIT mm-hmm. is called the London Stereoscopic Company. Okay. And Reese, Brian's publisher, and others were in on looking at all this and helping to shape it all into a book as well. Mm-hmm. Now, now, as far as I know, um, you know, the, when, when these telescopes take pictures, they're not actually taking pictures of the colors that are seen. You know, it's not optical. It's sort of uh, where uh, your systems create the colors based on sort of parameters you enter as you collect the data. Is that, you see, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there are a couple of things going on there mm-hmm. um, that, that make them look much better and different than what we can see, say, in real time in a telescope. Mm-hmm. Human eyes, first of all, collect light about for, for about a 30th of a second, and then they dump it to the brain and they collect light again. So they don't. We don't collect and build up light very long with our eyes. So we can't see color in really faint stuff. Is one limitation that we have. Mm-hmm. Also, you're right that recording these pixels now with digital now nowadays everything is recorded with CCD chips in cameras, mm-hmm. um, and they're recorded on digitally on pixels, and you can really adjust the colors and the saturation to make things look really zingy or to make them look pretty much as the human eye would see them. So everyone really kind of leans on the saturation button, if you will now. Um, But you can, you can with these uh, pictures and many of these nebulae, for example, are, are strongly red because of the light that they put out. We don't see them as red in the telescope because our eyes aren't sensitive enough to the faint light. But if you could see uh, that sensitive faint light, they are actually red. So even though they look different in the pictures than we see them, mm-hmm. they many of them are portrayed accurately. It's a limitation of our eyes mm-hmm. as much as calibrating the camera. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If so, since you mentioned digital, if um, anyone were to uh, put analog, you know, put film on a satellite and get it out there to take pictures, you know, with current technology, is there any benefit to, um, to film still over digital in any way? There really isn't any more. Now for a while, digital chips were when they were new and everyone wanted one wasn't really kind of as great as film because the resolution wasn't so wonderful but the really big chips now that even you can get in a in a sort of a middle to upper end canon dslr has a full frame chip in it now and that has so many pixels in it that it's really as good as film and the digital aspect of it makes it more efficient and much better so that you can capture faint stuff in much shorter times now because remember when you take a picture of something in the sky earth is rotating Mm -hmm. so you need to track on the stars in the opposite direction that they're that earth is moving in order to have sharp stars so it's really tricky Mm -hmm. and so shorter exposures with the digital stuff makes that a lot easier than it used to be now, film shots are, are beautiful still, and especially wide field Milky Way shots shot on film and stuff. But they're really, you know, not many people are, are really doing that at all for the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. So in the book, um, it's it's not just uh, the photographs or the pictures. There's also text involved. 
Um, what, uh, what do you include? What do you write about these pictures? A lot. And that, that was my primary job was writing the, the text with this book. And, and it starts off talking about how uh, something that Carl Sagan used to say, you know, we're really made of this star stuff that goes into making stars. The atoms in our body, um, of which there are many billions uh, in our human bodies, were either made, uh, some of them, the lightest ones at the very start of, of the universe, called what was called Big Bang nucleosynthesis. But most of them, the so-called heavier than hydrogen or helium atoms, were made in exploding stars, the, literally the atoms that are in our bodies. So by looking at the process of stars being born and going through their evolution and dying, we're seeing literally where we came from as well from an atomic standpoint, the mm. elements that make up our bodies. So we look at that and we look then at, at the Milky Way and what's in our Milky Way galaxy and throughout it, uh, what's, what is called the interstellar medium, that's the stuff between the stars, this gas and dust that gets compressed. And really what we're in in the galaxy, what galaxies do is a gigantic recycling program. Mm. So they gravity compresses gas down to make new stars and old stars explode and send gas and dust out and so this process goes on over the span of millions or hundreds of millions of years over and over and over with generations of stars uh, and we're part of that so we look at the life cycles of stars and then we take a detailed look at the different kinds of these clouds, these nebulae. Some of them are stellar birthplaces, as I mentioned, where this gas is coming together and being pulled together by gravity. And it makes a cluster of new stars. And we can see some of these star clusters with gas around them in our telescopes. Others, as I mentioned, are the endpoints of stars. And stars like our sun will end up, uh, when it can't burn its hydrogen and, and slightly heavier elements anymore, stars are nuclear fusion reactors. That's what they do. That's what's putting out the energy that gives us life on Earth is our sun's nuclear reactions. Mm -hmm. When they run out of stuff to burn, if you will, then they, a star like the sun belches off its outer layers and becomes a cocoon and a little remnant inside and forms what's called a planetary nebula because it looks like a planet in a telescope. That's what we will end up as. But massive stars that are really massive can explode like a bomb and, and they're called supernovae. Mm -hmm. They create these supernova remnants that are big clouds of gas. Uh, and then we can look, uh, you know, at the future of the sun and, and us and the fact that, you know, we're about halfway through the sun's life. We, our solar system is 4.6 billion years old. In about 5 billion years or so, our sun will run out of fuel and it will slough off its outer layers and will become uh, one of these planetary nebulae that you can see across the galaxy for a few tens of thousands of years. Hmm. It's interesting the way you describe the process, you know, I can think either it's, you know, with the growth and then the explosions, you know, it's either a machine or it's actually the universe or the galaxy, at least, is a living thing because it does include life within the machine of processes that are going on. 
it certainly uh, has produced living things on Earth, uh, this one planet. Now, just to, to speculate for a second, mm -hmm. the visible universe that we can see, we know there are about 100 billion galaxies. There, the Milky Way galaxy is just one of them, the galaxy that we're in, mm -hmm. about two-thirds of the way out from the center of our galaxy. Uh, we know that altogether there are about 10,000 billion billion stars in the universe, in the visible universe, which may not be the whole universe. Mm -hmm. And yet we know of, so, and, and we also know through spectroscopy, through looking at the spectra of objects, very distant objects even, that chemistry works the same way uh, all over the universe. Mm -hmm. And we know that there are sophisticated organic molecule organic compounds and molecules in the solar system in comets and in asteroids things like amino acids that that are the building blocks of proteins and so on so the stuff of life is out there yet we know of only one planet mm -hmm. where life exists of course so far right here mm -hmm. so how many other planets could there be out of 10,000 billion billion star systems <laughs> That 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 that's out uh, for for resolution. Still, astronomers won't run out of any work to do for a while yet. Well, didn't Harvard just say that there are thirty seven uh, or thirty six communicating out there? Something. Well, that was an estimate. Yeah, and <laughs> and uh, you know you you could go from anywhere that uh, you know there's some astronomers even who think that life is a one time occurrence. That seems to be awfully bold. Because we come from a heritage of uh, hundreds and several thousands of years of thinking that we're the most important place in the center of everything. That turns out not exactly to be true in the universe. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that chemistry is universal everywhere. So it would be astonishing, given the numbers, if there weren't life spread generously throughout the galaxy and the universe. However, the distances are so large that you probably wouldn't have them physically coming to places, landing in Central Park and having lunch with the aliens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess <laughs> I guess some scientists, though, they demand, they, they must see the data for themselves. Um, they, they don't go on a, yeah, they, they resist unless. Uh, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, science is definitely about the data and about repeatability and about experimentation, observation, empiricism we have no evidence of life uh, anywhere else as yet that's mm -hmm. absolutely true yeah in a sense it's faith you know <laughs> that there is <laughs> yeah yeah well and maybe probabilities for some right. at the moment here. yeah i'm just yeah. yeah i'm just cracking jokes here <laughs> sure sure yeah um do you see any so as far as this study of this um do you see what in science um are there any advances that are needed well, obviously, there's a lot that are needed, but do you see any in the close horizon that, that will happen to help us understand all of this better? Oh, boy, I do. And I think the thing that will help us understand how the universe works better, because they're, they're you know, it's big spacecraft exploration. There's can we all get together and put all the resources together and go to Mars and all sorts of things like that. Those could be done, but but in a, in a pure scientific way of understanding the universe, what's happening now, what's just starting to happen now, is that there are these enormous surveys that are starting to take place that will look at 
huge numbers of stars and of galaxies and of uh, planetary systems outside our solar system, of which we know of several thousand planets around other stars now. And these surveys are really starting to take off, and that'll give us a more quantitative look with these survey projects at what the galaxy uh, is all about and uh, may lead to things like how many planets are in the habitable zones of other stars mm-hmm. and uh, where did, you know, uh, the sister stars that our sun was born with go as we orbited the galaxy and all sorts of questions like uh, the fate of the universe, what will happen eventually mm-hmm. to the whole universe at large. There are a lot of big questions that are on the cusp of being answered now. And the fact that we can do surveys with big telescopes and produce a lot more data more quickly than you could 10 or 20 years ago will start to answer a lot of those questions but always always the most exciting stuff uh, tends to be the things that you can't predict <laughs> the right. surprises yeah yeah the eureka moments right right <laughs> so and I know this is beyond the scope of this book, but I'd like to ask about uh, science education. Um, do you think, what do you think about the um, enthusiasm for these subjects and the funding and support for science and STEM, you know, STEM and STEAM? Yeah, well, we, we have, it's better than it ever has been before. Hmm. Uh, and there's a lot going on. There's enormous enthusiasm for the students who are interested in science hmm. and involved with STEM and with STEAM. Um, And yet we have um, probably more of a dichotomy in the last uh, couple of decades here of a lot of people who rely on science, but they fundamentally don't believe it or they're suspicious of it as well. Hmm. So I think the students are very much on board and and are very uh, enthralled by it and understand the reasoning of science as a way to to, to comprehend what the truth is, what's really happening in the universe. Mm. If that's important to you uh, and you understand at all what science is and how it works, then science becomes important. But there tend to be a huge number of people in this world, uh, as much, you know, as as large a percentage maybe as there was 500 years ago, it would seem, of people who think that, uh, well, you know, science is just another method and it's no better than hearing the opinion from your friend or another authority figure, you know. Mm-hmm. So we seem to, in society at large, have a long way to go because we're, in a lot of people's minds, science hasn't made a lot more progress than, you know, the year 1500 on the streets of Florence. Mm-hmm. When, you know, yeah. Galileo, we're waiting for Galileo to come along. <laughs> and and maybe I'm answering my own question here, but do you see change? Do people ch- become more positive towards science once they if they're brought to telescopes, if you know, if they're if they're allowed to look through the telescopes or get their hands on um, scientific tools and that sort of thing? I think they do. I think, you know, when, and I don't want to be sarcastic or mean about this, but, you know, everyone seems to be a believer in science when they're lying in a hospital bed, Mm -hmm. you know, but, but do they believe it or think about the most logical reasoning and the realities of things all the time? Most people don't. Mm -hmm. Um, But, 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I answered you. Maybe you could restate your question. I think I, I, I sidestepped it there. I didn't mean to. Oh, no, no. Um, I just, I'm thinking about efforts to, um, you know, like NASA outreach or other outreach programs. You know, is it when you reach out to kids, is it basically preaching to the choir? Uh, do you yes. think, how do yeah, you reach, yeah. how do you reach into, you know, into minds that are resistant? Sure. Well, that's a really good question. And we, we try to do everything we can, you know, with the book projects that we're doing and with Astronomy Magazine, which has the largest audience of astronomy enthusiasts, and with other sciences, uh, with the Starmus Festival and publicize what's going on there. We've had many astronauts and many Nobel Prize uh, winners there, laureates as, as well, giving talks there. And you mentioned, you know, when someone gets their own look through a telescope and they see the moon live and the actual photons hitting their eyes and so on, I think they do become, uh, you know, a little bit attuned to it and, and alive from it there. Uh, it's hard because, you know, most people have such busy days now and just doing what they need to do in their lives is such a struggle. Mm. Most people never get to see the sky in terms of astronomy. That is a dark sky. Uh, you know, light pollution is getting worse and worse and worse all the time. Mm. A couple of hundred years ago, essentially everyone had a dark sky. Mm. Now, most of the people, for example, in the United States, east of the Mississippi, don't have a truly dark sky. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's a challenge, but we, we keep fighting the fight, and, and we hope that over time things are getting better, and certainly more people than, you know, I'm a, I've been, I was a little bit jokey there. More, more people believe in science than did 500 years ago, but mm-hmm. it's a slow process, and you would hope that people would realize it's in their best interest to uh, understand the way things really are closer to the leading edge mm-hmm. of what we know now, because that's what education and progress are all about, finding out how to manage the world in the best way that we can. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's all there if people are interested enough. Um, you know, they can certainly be as aware as anyone else. Yeah. I'm speaking with David J. Eicher, co-author of Cosmic Clouds 3D. You can find more information on Twitter at D. Iker Star and on Facebook at David John Iker or on the Astronomy Magazine website. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if you can. Please go to my website, spacewalksmoneytalks.com, for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. Historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. And again, a question beyond the scope of the book, but just tapping um, your knowledge and experience. Do you see any challenges in space education uh, or space research that could easily be um, overcome with just a few changes in policy or law or, or funding or anything like that? I do. And, you know, you know, in general, I mean, and not not just the present administration, you know, in general, in recent times, since the shuttle program, Mm -hmm. you know, the United States Congress has not been fantastically excited about funding science. And, and, you know, it's the problem is that the forward, you know, look at what's important tends to be about a week 
you know, for politicians rather than a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are certainly chal- big challenges. I think it's inevitable that a big mission uh, is lies in the future and, and the things that SpaceX and other private companies are doing are critical leading up to, to either getting back to the moon or going to Mars or doing more space research about uh, things that could help ordinary lives on Earth as well, because a lot of such things came out of Apollo, for example. But those kinds of things are going to really take multiple governments and private and government organizations working together because there's such huge undertakings, especially going to, say, going to Mars, taking people to Mars is going to be so expensive and so complicated um, that that's a little ways off. It seems to always be we're close to that and then not really for a long time now. But the thing that's better to see, I think, in terms of space exploration is the enthusiasm, the excitement of so many young people are really excited and interested about space again, almost kind of like the Apollo era when I was young and and growing up. And SpaceX, it's other things. There are a lot of young people who are really juiced up about exploring space, and I think they're going to do exciting things. Mm -hmm. Uh, The James Webb, when is that... uh... No, that's been delayed more than twice now. And uh, John Mather is a friend who's the project scientist, and it's slated to be launched next year. Now, whether that actually happens or not, you know, we don't know yet. There have been a couple of false starts already. It's an extremely complicated thing to get going, and and it's a very expensive project, of course. But that'll, in essence, be the replacement for the Hubble Space Telescope uh, that will be eventually its orbit will be decaying Hubble. And among many, many other things, uh, Webb should tell us about how the first stars and galaxies formed in the universe, which we don't know. And it should survey in a much, much better way than nearby worlds and be able to find maybe true Earth-like worlds that are around us in the galaxy. So there are exciting things happening uh, that will happen to come, but I think it's going to be at least another year before that gets going. It's such a complicated project. Is that uh, is that the biggest or only recent uh, astronomy-related project being developed or finished, or are there others? There are others that have been planetary missions for the most part, and some other smaller telescope projects as well. Mm-hmm. But this is the the big one. This is the expensive one that will benefit all areas of astronomy and that will be the workhorse for a generation to come like Hubble was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ter- to turn back to the book, um, yes. what part of it, and obviously you've been involved in this for a while, but for this book, um, what part of it uh, was most enjoyable? What do you, you discover? Well, I think writing about um, the galaxy and the interstellar medium, uh, the stuff in the galaxy that's floating around, and how stars form. Because when I was a teenager, just getting involved with this stuff, I had a pair of binoculars, and I went out in a farm field, and we had a reasonably dark sky. I grew up in southern Ohio, Mm. 
and uh, near my you know, right out and back of my neighborhood, a suburb, you know, it was a pretty good sky. And just sort of going around the sky with seven by 50 binoculars, you can see some of these things. And so just discovering, stumbling on them and finding them and understanding what they were. I didn't know what anything was at first, of course, uh, finding out what they were and that these were the places where new stars are being born, just like our sun was. Uh, and understanding that they orbit around the center of the galaxy and their stars are dispersed and scattered. And this is uh, how stars live, if you will, mm-hmm. um, kind of analogously to people. They have lifetimes, too. And so, so I think writing about the formation of stars was, was among the most fun. Was growing up in Ohio as a big uh, flight history state um, formative for oh, your interests? Yeah. Oh, yes, indeed. And I grew up in Oxford. And uh, first of all, I can say that my father, John Eicher, who we he lived to be 95. We lost him in 2016. Mm. Uh, But he grew up on Ruskin Road in Dayton, Ohio. Mm. Um, And he he was two doors down the Eicher house that was in 1929. They built a house. He grew up in the 30s, mostly there. So that was two doors down from a woman who was named Ivanette Wright Miller, the Mm. niece of the Wright brothers. Of course, Wilbur was long gone at that point in time, but every once in a while, Orville would drive his big black uh, touring car with acetylene torches up and park it, and my father would talk to him. Mm. And so, you know, we think of the origin of space flight Mm -hmm. being incredibly far back in time. That's one gen- just one generation back to the origin of flight, of powered flight. Yeah. You know, in Dayton. So, yeah, Wright-Patterson in Dayton and uh, all the connections there at Miami and Ohio. Uh, there, there's a big heritage of the Wright brothers, of course, there. Yeah, yeah. Did you discover anything surprising for this particular book? Did you come across something that surprised you? Well, to be honest, I knew most of this stuff already. It had written, you know, it's, I've had a 37-year career at Astronomy Magazine after doing my own amateur teenage writing and so on. So I really knew all this. It's fun to get up to the latest moment with each of these kinds of questions and the research and summarize it all. Mm-hmm. You know, but I've been kind of playing in, in this playground for a long time now and and paying attention to it. So I didn't really learn a lot with this book Uh, i did learn some things with the apollo book because i'm more of a deep sky sky observer galaxy science research kind of guy than i was an apollo guy so that was a little more (laughs) revealing to me okay was there any images were there any images that um that you wanted to include but couldn't because of some uh technical limitation or something about it that uh that uh, limited its its usefulness for for being included in the book. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know what you're saying, and I honestly don't think there really were. Now, some of the most of the images are these 3D images, and there are some other images in the book as well. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, maybe the 3D images were were sort of shot chosen in part by what JP decided to shoot as simulated 3D objects. But but he covered the big, exciting ones pretty exhaustively. So mm-hmm. so I think there really was an image that we really longed to have that we didn't have. What would you say are your three favorite images in the book? 
And I, I hate to put you on the spot, you know, choose the best, but uh, which ones do you personally like the most? No problem. I would have to say the, the best nebula that we have in the northern sky is the Orion Nebula. And you can actually see it in a dark sky, reasonably dark sky, with the naked eye alone. It's in what's called the sword of Orion below Orion's belt, those three bright stars in Orion. Mm -hmm. And there's a fuzzy star you can see just with your naked eye uh, in the sword, and that's the Orion Nebula. It's the biggest star-forming region that's in the northern sky. Now, the Carina Nebula is another great, unbelievably huge, bright star-forming region problem is for many of us that's in the southern hemisphere sky so you need to get down to the southern hemisphere to see it yeah. and then another favorite is the lagoon nebula that's in the summer sky the orion nebula is in the winter time sky the lagoon nebula in sagittarius is in the summer sky and that's a beautiful object as well with a bright star cluster and all sorts of gas and dust and you can go out and in a pretty good sky you know even really binoculars or a really small scope and see these things for yourself mm -hmm. could you would you be willing to speak for brian may do you know if he had any particular favorites in the collection oh, hey boy i'd hate to say that um for <laughs> brian and, and brian's a little bit out of touch you know he's been through a very rough time with his health recently here so okay um, you know and but he's doing okay but he's okay, he's uh after a couple of uh, big years of touring with Queen, uh, he's had a sort of a rough year this year, aside, over and beyond the normal COVID craziness that all of us have had to deal with. So, so I really would hate to speak for Brian. He, he's talked about a lot of objects, but I couldn't say, uh, I wouldn't want to say exactly what his favorite is. Okay, I appreciate. Okay, I understand, um, and hopefully he gets better. Um, yeah, I think he's on the mend now. Okay. Yep. Good. Good. So obviously there are going to be a lot of enthusiasts for the book, but what about the reader who takes a look and says, oh, you know, these are pretty cool pictures, and then they close it. What, what would you like them to, you know, take a moment and, and take from what they're seeing? Well, and there are going to be a lot of people like that who never take the effort to go out and, and to see this stuff in a sky, you know, away from a city, you know, like this. And they are beautiful pictures, so they do show you a picture book quality of the universe but i guess the you know the the incredible diversity of stuff and the size of our galaxy you know if we uh, this is maybe a little bit difficult with an audio interview but if we imagine the size the the distance between sun and earth as one centimeter that's one astronomical unit that's one centimeter is the earth to the sun distance say mm -hmm. The edge of our solar system on that scale is 10 football fields off to the side. <laughs> yeah. And that is just one quarter of a light year. Okay? Yeah. And our, the disk of our galaxy, just the disk part, the bright part of just our galaxy alone is 100,000 light years across. So... Not only is there great diversity of all these kinds of stars and nebulae and forming in groups and exploding and dying, all over that have all these different amazing colorful looks, but they're spread out over this almost incomprehensibly large scale 
that it's almost impossible for us to imagine. And that's just one galaxy out of a hundred billion that we know exists. So I, I suppose the incredible beauty and diversity of the universe and the unbelievable magnitude of how large the universe is. Mm-hmm. Oh, we need to find the wormholes. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's a pretty daunting yeah. task. But then again, I guess the um, the oceans looked daunting for early explorers when they were... That's true. That's true, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so it sounds like putting together the book and finishing it was... Uh, pretty smooth but were there any difficulties in getting it finished or published not really i mean i think the 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 difficulty always is that you know it's not a difficulty but the the it's a little bit of a complication is that you know when you're working with a guy who's one of the most famous rock musicians in the world Mm -hmm. he's got about 50 things going on simultaneously (laughs) so the fact that brian can squeeze something like this in and pay attention to it and go back and forth on things and work on it is pretty incredible. I mean, when Queen was touring, you know, he was looking, you know, after shows late at night at proofs and so on. You know, it's the guy is superhuman with his energy and, and with his ability and interest to get involved in many, many things because he's involved in animal welfare. Uh, he's involved, heavily involved in music, of course, in astronomy and stereoscopy and other stereo activities and publishing he has many many interests and he's constantly uh, involved in all of them so it's it's an amazing thing that that we can get these projects done because he's one busy guy that's what i would call a renaissance man in the... he is indeed and he's an incredibly very knowledgeable i think it's apparent apparent to everyone I mean, he's a, he's very well known he, his interviews are well known He's a doctorate, PhD in astrophysics. He's a very brilliant guy, but also a very down-to-earth, very warm, soft-spoken guy, and and that's quite a combination. Mm-hmm. So, what's your um, next writing project? Well, that's a good question. I have a couple of things that are kind of just starting now. I also have a book on galaxies that was just published uh, last month by Random House that was a long project, too. So I'm kind of taking a breath after having two books come out nearly simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a couple of ideas that I'm just getting uh, traction on going at the moment here. One of them is looking sort of about uh, combining science and American history. I've done some writing on American history as well. And and there's a, a big uh, sort of heritage of science and of Newtonian physics and so on among the early founders of the United States, too, that hasn't been written about much. So maybe I'll get involved in that. Hmm. Okay. Where can people find you on the web, a uh, web page or social media? They can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, David Eicher, E-I-C-H-E-R. And they can find Astronomy Magazine in all those places. They can find me on astronomy.com, our website, and uh, here, there, and everywhere else. Okay. So tell me, um, what excites you at this moment in time? What excites you about space? Hmm. It's a tremendous moment because um, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. We've come after having these big questions forever, as long as people looked up and wondered what the twinkling points were. 
we've had the resolution to some of these big questions come upon us just in this generation now after hundreds, thousands of years or longer. Um, you know, what will happen ultimately to the universe? How did the Big Bang origin of the universe happen? What will happen to life on Earth? Not to ruin the surprise, but we have only about a billion years on Earth left maximum. Mm. Um, uh, how did uh, the moon form? What happened to Mars, which used to be a wet planet and now is a dry planet? Um, how, how did Venus turn itself inside out? Uh, what's the nature of Pluto? All you know, uh, how many stars are around us in the Milky Way with planetary systems? All these big things that really were speculations we're finding out the answers to now in this generation. So it's an incredibly exciting time to be involved in astronomy. And it's just a an overload of research and of images going on now. So it's a good problem to have. Mm. Too much cool stuff to think about. Mm. Yeah, it is good. Um, <laughs> so that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? I think I think you've covered things extremely well, and I and I thank you again for uh, for having me. And and Cosmic Clouds 3D and and also my Galaxies book are mm. both out there now. And I will get busy on the next round. <laughs> Don't feel the pressure. It's okay. It's okay. Take your breath. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much. Thanks, Chris, for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great space information. You can find links to interesting space videos on my Facebook page, Spacewalks Money Talks. You can find links to interesting space news articles and academic information on my Twitter page, Spacewalks MT. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Spacewalks Money Talks. You can find my videos on my YouTube page, Spacewalks Money Talks. You can also sign up for my newsletter at SpacewalksMoneyTalks.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links, as well as regular updates on new space science, business, and history books being published. Thank you for listening. 